Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. This week we will continue our journey. The last few weeks we've been talking about the Satipatthana reframe, and I wanted to Well, I thought I would finish up today. I think it's going to be one more week, but we're going to move into the last line of the refrain today and talk about clinging. This is such a huge, huge part of the Dharma, but I did want to talk about some basics around clinging because I'd like to talk about the aggregate. So I think in the next few weeks, a couple of things I've had on my agenda for a while is to talk about the aggregates, to give a Dharma talk on karma and a talk on not self. So these are kind of some preliminary like topics that can be helpful if we're going to dive into some of those more complicated ones. And I haven't given talks on those really outside of classes. I usually save those kind of talks for classes, but I just thought I'd bring them in over the next few weeks. So I wanted to finish up today with this last line of the refrain, and I'll get us on the same page by reminding you of what we've been talking about. So In the Satipatthana Sutta, there is the refrain that explains ways in which we can use the four foundations of mindfulness. So we have our four foundations, the body, feelings, mind, and dhammas, or dharmas, which is sort of the spiritual concepts. And then there's these four lines that explain ways to ground yourself in practice, some primary ways of using those four foundations that are the foundations of Vipassana. And so the ones we've been exploring, we talked about experiencing or practicing both internally and externally. We explored impermanence, focusing on arising and passing away. And last week we talked about cultivating bare attention and continuous mindfulness. So we spoke about that. And then the last line of the refrain encourages us to cultivate non-clinging. And the line usually says non-clinging towards anything in the world, complete letting go, complete letting go, non-clinging. So I wanted to talk about this line, this attitude and action of non-clinging, but it's a pretty, (laughs) it's a pretty multidimensional concept. So today what I'd like to do is to see how far I can get into, into clinging. And then next week, uh, ideally I'd talk about the aggregates. So I'm going to talk about what clinging is and then describe the Buddha's four types of clinging just to give us like a foundation into this topic. And the, and the four types of clinging are helpful and they, they'll be pretty obvious, but it's really helpful to remember the four types of clinging. So I'm going to explain that tonight and hopefully that'll ground us for some other deeper conversations. The word for clinging is upadana and it plays a huge role in Buddhism, particularly Theravada Buddhism, but most Buddhism, most Buddhisms, but particularly in the Satipatthana, clinging is mentioned, and it's just a huge, it's a huge deal in the Dharma. When we look at the Four Noble Truths, right, which is the summary, in a sense, of the Buddhist teachings, we can recall that the Buddha lays out this four-part reminder that his insight was that there is suffering 
that there is a cause of suffering, that there is a freedom or cure from suffering, and that there is a path that we can follow and practices we can engage in, which teach us how to comprehend the nature of suffering, how to comprehend how we participate in our own suffering and, and what the cure or the way out actually is. And what's interesting about the term suffering is that the word suffering is a part of it, at least three words that I know of that the Buddha doesn't define literally. He defines through the actual practices, through the actual Dharma teachings. So the three words that, that this um, relates to is suffering, mind, and happiness. These three words, the Buddha doesn't just give you a definition of what happiness is or what suffering is or what mind is, chitta. Uh, he just gives examples of practices and gives broad definitions of these terms, which allows us to see the universality of these experiences. And so when the Buddha talks about suffering in particular, he gives the classic broad categories of human experience, right? He says that birth is suffering, aging, death is suffering, being around people we don't like is suffering, you know, being not being around people we want to be around, that's suffering, stress is suffering, pain is suffering. So he goes into these kind of broad universal human experiences and says, these are all what I kind of mean by suffering. Then he caps it off by saying, suffering is also the five clinging aggregates, the clinging aggregates. So when we talk about dukkha, stress, discontent, suffering in the Dharma, it is always directly tied to clinging, right? This upadana, this, this concept of clinging. So we can't talk about enlightenment without talking about suffering. And we can't talk about suffering without talking about clinging particularly the clinging to our aggregates, which is why in the refrain, clinging is here because it's the foundational idea of letting go in the Dharma. So it's just like the bedrock of so much of the Dharma comes right here. And I'll say what the, the aggregates are just to ground us again in the vocabulary of the Dharma. Uh, and then I'll talk about the four types of clinging that are related to suffering. And so for those of you who don't remember or are new to the concept, the, the aggregates, also known as khandas, I believe it's K-H-A-N-D-S, the khandas, the aggregates are, <laughs> what are the aggregates? The aggregates are processes. They are the way we relate to parts of ourself that cause suffering. So the aggregates are form, the physical body, materiality, feelings, perceptions, formations, and consciousness. And it's a complicated list, but the list essentially is a list of qualities that we relate to, that we mistake for a self. It's things we cling to in a normative human experience that ends up leading to suffering. And so we see in the beginning teachings of Buddhism that the aggregates are mentioned, clinging is mentioned, Suffering is mentioned and suffering's end is mentioned all within this context. It's important to remember that clinging is normal. <laughs> so the mind clings, right? The heart clings. It's what it does. And it has to do some clinging in order to have any sense of self. So in the Dharma, we're sort of backtracking and becoming aware of this primarily non-conscious process 
that we go through to create our identity in the world. So we're taking a step back and becoming awake and aware to how the heart and mind reaches out into the world and grabs onto things, grabs onto things to make meaning, to make relationships, to make points of view, to love and care for each other. So clinging is is what consciousness does. It clings to the object. And so we don't want to start by thinking, oh my gosh, my mind is clinging. What am I doing? Because of course your mind is clinging. That's what the mind does. That's what consciousness is designed to do. So with the Dharma, we go against the stream of this natural inclination to cling to things. And we slowly learn to let loose of our grip. We loosen our grip on the clinging and we feel the freedom and release that comes with that relinquishment. And so the Buddha talks about four common ways that the heart and mind cling to things in the world. And so I'm going to talk about, I think maybe talk about two of them tonight. We'll see what we get to, but I'll at least talk about two of the four. I think it's important to, when we use the word clinging, because it's so often used in the Dharma, but I don't think we, I don't think we, like I said, I don't think we define it clearly enough because the Buddha doesn't necessarily lay out just this one definition of clinging. But I'm going to offer just a few hints at how you might have already experienced this in your own practice and in your own life. So you can kind of get a feel for what the Buddha is talking about. One way of looking at clinging is on a spectrum of desire, right? A spectrum of desire. And oftentimes it's described as desire arises, right? This wanting. And that wanting leads to grasping, the reaching out. And then clinging is the grabbing onto and holding of an object, right? And the implication is sometimes there's a metaphor used uh, or an analogy of a thief stealing a diamond where the, the longing for the beautiful thing arises, then the reaching out to take the thing and the clinging is the ownership, the taking to into one's being, right? Into one's possession, that thing and not wanting to let it go, right? It's There's a tension in clinging that's implied. It's not a comfortable state necessarily. Right? It's a grasping that has a slight negative connotation. It implies not being able to let go of something, not even being able to let go of something in the face of harming ourselves or harming others. The challenge with clinging is that it's harmful. So when we talk about clinging in the Dharma, we're talking about a contracted state. It's not a relaxed state. And oftentimes it's associating, associated with like covetousness, right? Like I want this, it's mine. And a selfishness even, right? Like an ignorance. Where there is ignorance, there is clinging, right? And so part of the letting go of ignorance and the liberation of ignorance in the Dharma has to do with the letting go and learning to let it let go of the clinging. So wherever clinging is present, there's also an ignorance. So that's also part of it. So when we Whenever we hear clinging in the Dharma, that's that's a general implication for the word clinging. And it, it's important to know that we can cling to anything. We can cling to material objects like people or places or actual tangible goods, so to speak. But we can also cling to ideas. We can cling to emotions. We can cling to our worldviews. So the heart and mind can cling 
to both solid real things in the world and complete abstractions that don't actually exist as material things. So consciousness can, can make anything into an object and cling to it. Another thing to know about clinging as a word is that a separate, a separate or secondary translation of clinging is to feed, feeding on something. And so when we talk about clinging in the Dharma, we're also reminding ourselves that we are consuming creatures, right? We feed off things. We feed off things literally, right? For energy, for food, for sustenance. And we feed off things emotionally, right? We feed off of our relationships. We feed off of our friendships. We feed off of our sense of identity. We get nourished by our attachment to our employment and our roles. So uh, upadana, this clinging, is a type of consumption, like a type of feeding. The mind and the heart feed off of things. And this is why, uh, for example, uh, when the Buddha talks about the pleasure of meditation, he often talks about it as spiritual food, right? It's an alternative to the clinging to the world. We can feed off something else. It's why the pleasure of jhana is sometimes referred to as the food of the gods. So the pleasure of meditation invites the mind to feed or cling to something more nourishing. Sometimes you'll hear teachers talk about clinging is like attaching yourself to a reality that has no nutrition, like it's like junk food. So you're attaching yourself and trying to feed off something that's not giving you the nutrition. One of the images that I think I've mentioned before is... Um, that the Buddha uses is a dog trying to get nourishment off a bare bone, who's trying to like get something off the bone, but there's no nutrition there. But the mind and the heart cling. It tries to get sustenance. So when we're looking at clinging, you might look at it as feeding, right? What are you trying to use to get nourished? That's the question that we would ask. The last thing I'll say about the connotation of clinging is that there is identity making related to the process of clinging. This is where we get into this off-ramp of not-self. That when we cling to something, it's usually associated with I, me, mine. My body, my emotion, my this, my that, right? It's I, me, mine, I, me, mine. As, the, as consciousness reaches out and grasps onto objects, we make them ours. And in that moment of clinging, a sense of self arises, the sense of I. And so because we can cling to anything, we can identify with anything from, I can identify with living in organ, right? I can identify with being a husband or a brother or, you know, whatever the case may be, a Buddhist. So the, there's an identity that arises with the clinging and the identity making is another version of suffering, another version of suffering. That's where the teachings of not self come in, that we cling to things, we create a self, we mistake the self for something real, and we suffer as a result. Maybe real is not the best word, solid, I would say. Solid and permanent is probably the better way of putting that. Sometimes we can cling so tightly to something that we begin to fuse with the object. One of the clearest examples is being overly identified with one's views on something, right? When two people are battling it out based on views, they're so overly identified with the views that if you 
critique or mock or insult the view, they feel the pain as if the, they themselves are being, are being injured. So we can overly identify. So, so you can often think of clinging as a fusion of you and the object, right? Fusion of you and the object. Kind of like what happened when I noticed during the fires that were up here in the Pacific Northwest last year, or maybe it was the year before when we had those big fires, you know, watching the landscape burn, you know, I live here and there was that kind of sorrow, but there was this identification of just kind of being in Oregon, right? Like I'm an Oregonian and seeing like the pain of the entire landscape being, being injured, there was this sense of like, being connected to that, right? And you could feel the sorrow based on the identification with like, Oregon is is burning <laughs> and I live here and I'm an Oregonian and there's a sorrow and sadness for the environment. So we confuse our identity into the outer environment and into other people and into concepts. And when we're unaware of it, it creates the dukkha, it creates stress, which is why it's so powerful and it's why it's such an important concept in the Dharma. So that's clinging in the most general sense. So now what I want to do is talk about some of the types of clinging that the Buddha says specifically. And the first type of clinging that the Buddha talks about that causes suffering is the most obvious one and the one we're most familiar with, which is called sensuality clinging. Clinging to sensuality. And this includes, this literally includes all the things that you want in terms of sense contact, all the things you like, all your joys, all your pleasant sensations that you seek out moment to moment, clinging to sensuality, called sensuality clinging. And it's important to remember with Buddhist psychology that the word sensual refers to the fact that we are sense-based beings and everything comes in through sense contact. Sensual does not mean sexual or intimate in the way that we use the word in the West often. Sensuality means pleasant sensations, things that titillate the senses at any level. It could be the sensation that a room is perfect temperature, or it could be the sensation you get when you go to a movie, right? Or the sensation you get when you're hanging out with your pet or hanging out with someone that you love. Any of the sensations, that's all sensuality. Any of those experiences, those are considered to be uh, the realm of sensuality clinging when there's clinging present. It could be small things, it could be large things, anything in the realm of sense door contact. Even, for example, clinging to the calm mind, say in meditation. Meditation gets calm, the mind doesn't wander, oh, that feels good, clinging. The mind starts to wander, we get sad, right? The clinging to the emotional state. Any kind of pleasurable sensations are considered sensuality clinging. The challenge with sensuality is that it's such a foundational drive to our moment-to-moment -moment experience that we don't realize it's even happening. We don't realize how much of the choices we make in life and the decisions we make and the views we acquire are designed as strategies to get particular sensations, right? And I'll give you an example that I really like for myself when I was initially studying studying this years ago. I think one of the best examples is movies. So you've got horror movies, comedy movies, drama, mystery, sci-fi, action, romance. Each movie is designed, or each movie genre is designed to cultivate a certain set of sensations. 
it's not as much about the movie. It's about the kind of sensations we want to arise in consciousness. It's about how we want to feel from watching the movie. And this is what we're doing moment to moment, right? Moment to moment, our reality is, what kind of sensations would I like right now? I want a particular sensation, I'll put on music. I want a particular sensation, I'll put on a different kind of music. I want a particular sensation, I will call a friend. So the heart and mind is constantly reaching out into the world to create sensual pleasures. That's like what the, the we're constantly consuming sensuality. And even think about like uh, this catchphrase when someone asks you, what are you in the mood for? Let's say you call a friend and you're like, hey, let's go hang out. And they're like, okay, great. What are you in the mood for? Do we want to go out for coffee? Do you want to go out for a beer? Do we want to go to a movie? Do we want to go on a hike? What are you in the mood for? What we're really asking is, what set of sensations would you like to arise in your consciousness when we're together, <laughs> right? And I don't mean to make it sound like we're automatons, but at some level, we're walking through our day asking ourselves, wow, what kind of sensations can I create now for myself, right? Maybe I'll look at the window and look at the sunset, or maybe I'll go walk over and pet my cat, or maybe I'll get the endorphin rush of going on social media. So we're, we're, constantly clinging and grasping to have these sensations arise, this sensuality clinging. And it, <laughs> I, was just, I was just realizing it might not, I wouldn't recommend this. Next time <laughs> you ask someone how they're doing, like, how are you doing today? Instead of asking that, you, you could say, is the day providing you with the sense contact that you're desiring? <laughs> So, because really, or next time someone asks you how you're doing, you could say, man, I've had the greatest set of sensations today, the exact sensations I've been wanting all day. Or, you know, the sensations from my morning have been great, and I'm really hoping the afternoon is going to produce the exact sensuality that I'm looking that I'm looking for today. So, sensuality clinging. Part of the reason we really need to remind ourselves of it is that it's just happening incessantly. It's what the heart and mind is doing. So much so that we don't realize that it's happening unless we bring some mindfulness to it, unless we bring some reflection to it. So that's the first type of clinging, this very base drive of sensual pleasures. One of the things I always like to remind people when I talk about sense pleasures is that the Buddha didn't emphasize that sense pleasures were bad. He didn't frame it that way. It wasn't like, oh, you're spending all your time desiring these sense pleasures, look how bad they are. They're not bad in and of themselves, right? What he was usually emphasizing is that we spend so much time fantasizing, preparing, longing for, reminiscing about all of the sense pleasures, right? And the Buddha was saying, we spend more time planning, preparing, and imagining having the pleasure than the time it takes to actually have the pleasure itself. And so, so much of our life is not spent enjoying the present moment. It is spent preparing for the next moment, right? The next pleasure. So that's one of the things that's really uh, helpful to remember is how much time we spend fantasizing and wondering and daydreaming about the next sensual stimulation, rather than truly being content with whatever is rising in the current moment. I remember actually talking about something like this last year when uh, I was on a camping trip. I caught myself 
I had several days into this camping trip and it was just a great, it was great weather. It was just fun. Everything was quote unquote perfect. I was having all the sensations that I had fantasized about having while going camping. So I was having the camping experience. And I remember sitting there saying to myself, wow, this is really great. And then thinking, oh, next time I do this, I want, and completely fantasizing about my next camping trip while claiming that I was being satisfied with the current one that I was in. It was, it was crazy to watch. I was like, I'm enjoying this. And the mind is literally jumping out of the enjoyment to imagine it happening again. It's not even fully immersed in the present moment of the experience. So that's why we look at sensuality. We look at our dependence on it and how we cling and crave and the energy it takes and the disappointment we have when we don't get it. All of that kind of stuff is wrapped up in sensuality clinging. The second one is clinging to views. We just call view clinging. Usually when it's written, there's a dash. Sensuality dash clinging, view clinging, view dash clinging, usually how it's written. View clinging or clinging to views. This one's pretty straightforward, but I wanted to offer some suggestions on how you might think of it. View clinging, we just have to remember that it's basically all of your ideas, all the possible ideas that you could have about how the world works how you personally think the world is, right? How the world works, or you might say how you would like the world to be, right? How the world should be. That's your view. And views, I usually like to say that views are, views are not just opinions about things. That would be a little bit too superficial. Your view is deeper, more impacting, and more complicated, more interwoven into who you are as a person. In like, in Western philosophy or psychology, we might just call it a worldview. But in the Dharma, we just call it view, right? Clinging views. And so views, I'll give you some examples. I mean, you, these are pretty obvious, but part of the re reason clinging to views is so important to be mindful of is that most of the broadest bedrock views are non-conscious. We're not really consciously aware unless we really bring some mindfulness to it moment to moment that each of us has like dozens and dozens of points of view that are arising and passing away moment to moment that are framing and feeding our behaviors. And with mindfulness, we're invited to really look at the views that are framing the way we're showing up in the world. So I'll, I guess I'll just list some, I'll just list some examples just to, to get us on. So examples of views, right? Political views, spiritual views, views about economics, views about family, friendships, like all of us have friendships, but how often do we sit down and ask ourselves, what is my view about a, what a friendship should be, right? What is my view about friendship? What is my view about family? What is my view about being a good person in the world? What is my view about being dot, dot, dot? So we have these views that are at play that we inherit, that we adapt, adopt, acculturate, and we often just live out of them without much thought. And so mindfulness is suggesting that we take into account that there is this backdrop interpretation of reality that's always going on, and that's our views. Our view, I think the reason that the views are so important is in one sense, it gives our life, gives our life meaning, right? The views give meaning to our actions, give meaning to our desires. And the more we can get in touch with the views, 
then we can start to see how we're showing up in ways that's leading to happiness and how we're showing up in ways or how some of our views are leading us to more suffering, which is why if you think about it with the Eightfold Path, it starts with wise view, right? It says, I'm going to invite you to take on a view about the nature of happiness so you then can align your actions, your skillful actions with a point of view that leads to your liberation. So that's why view is so important in the Eightfold Path. The thing with views is that they also energize us, right? So our point of view energizes or stimulates us in a way that leads to, as I said, it leads to an action. And I'm going to give you just a couple examples of, of how this works uh, and, and why the Buddha would suggest that we're mindful of this. Let's take the standard B Buddhist uh, teaching. Let's suppose that you have a point of view that sensual clinging, sensual uh, happiness is the highest form of happiness, that there isn't any way to get beyond it, that there's nothing outside of sensual happiness, that we live in this world, it's a world of materiality, the best that this life has to give is we work, we get money, and we buy as many sensual pleasures or opportunities to have all of those sensations that we want. And there's nothing really else to be done here. Like, that's the view. If that's your view, then your life is going to look a particular way, right? You're going to show up in the world in a particular way. You're going to desire things in a particular way. You're going to have relationships that look a certain way. And so that's an example of a backdrop view that we may or may not be aware of. Another example, you might have a view that it is good to care for people who have less than you have, to care for people in need. You might have a view that as a human being, one of the things a human should do, quote unquote, is care for others. If you hold that view, you are going to approach human relationships in a very different way than if your view is, every person for themselves. Totally different view. Energizes a completely different action. So most of the time, if these are unconscious, then we're showing up in the world in ways that we're not even aware of because we've, we haven't gotten in touch with the view that's driving the behavior. So views are hugely important. I was listening, uh, I was listening to a podcast, a news podcast, I think it was this morning or yesterday, on the uh, bipartisan bill that was passed in the United States on gun control, or in, or at least they initiated. I'm not sure if it passed, but anyway, it was up. It's up to be voted on. So there's this bipartisan bill on gun control, and the person being interviewed, what I found them saying was they were talking about points of view that were embedded in the discussion on whether or not to vote yes or no on more gun control. And two of the things that the person had mentioned was that for many politicians who are considering voting yay or nay on this bill, there is this view that voting for any amount of gun control can future hurt their future political career, right? There's this view. And the person being interviewed was saying that that's a myth. That a lot of people, if you vote for some element of gun control, you're still going to be able to be, you know, representing your community. You're still going to be voted back into office. And so he kept talking about some of these views that were 
not necessarily true or he didn't think were true that were driving the voting on, on the law. Another thing he mentioned is that many folks, especially in the United States, associate guns with freedom and associate guns with being an American. Like there's an identity connected to owning to gun ownership. And that that view of what guns mean heavily influences whether or not someone supports gun control. And when I was listening to it, it was just, I was like, wow, he's talking about views. He's talking about how views, whether conscious or unconscious, are determining whether people, yay or nay, vote yes or no on this hugely meaningful new law uh, that they're trying to get passed or new set of laws that are trying to get passed. So to the degree that we can see that we're clinging to views or that our views might be causing harm to ourselves and causing harms to other, this is why the Buddha talks about being mindful of view clinging because so much of it is non-conscious. So much of it is under the wire. We don't really get to see it. The Buddha reminds us that one, it's totally normal to cling to views. In fact, he reminds us that even though wise view in the Eightfold Path is necessary for liberation, we don't want to cling to it because it's still a view, right? We still, we, we, can, we can use it to increase long-term happiness and well-being, but the Buddha also reminds us that the entire practice of the Dharma is also a perspective, a point of view. And in the end, Liberation requires that we even let go of the Dharma. We let go of the views that it contains and we don't grasp or cling to them because the grasping and clinging to the views ends up disrupting the process. Basically, the Buddha says that the Eightfold Path is a path that uses clinging to end all clinging. There's some clinging involved in it. There's some view making involved in it, but we can't be too attached to the view. So that's the second type of clinging. We have sensual clinging, sensuality clinging, and view clinging. And I'm gonna spend, yeah, I'll spend another five minutes. I'm gonna tie these two things together to show you how the Buddha conceptualized how this works in our life. So for these two types of clinging, view clinging and sensual clinging, the Buddha points out that one can essentially trigger or support the other. And this is, this is how it works. Sometimes what human beings do is we find pleasures that we like, right? It could be anything. We have a certain pleasure that we like, and then we cling to it. And as we find ourselves clinging to the pleasure, around this sense clinging, we create a view clinging. We create a view that supports and justifies and encourages getting more of the pleasure, right? So if we really like something in our life, we tend to then create a view which encourages more of that sensation. So sometimes it comes from the sensual end back to the view, right? It starts with like, oh, this is yummy. I'm going to create a view that having desserts three times a day is what it is to be a human being, or I really like chocolate. This is very, sen this taste, the sensuality of chocolate is really amazing. So I'm going to unconsciously create a view that allows me to eat cho chocolate whenever I want, 
right? And so it, it can work in that direction. The other direction is if you have a view and then the view determines how you pursue sensual pleasures. So for example, you might, as I said earlier, maybe you have this, uh, let's talk about the, the, the planet for a second, climate change. You might have a point of view that part of being a citizen, a good citizen of the world, is that you spend some time contemplating or acting in a way that protects the planet, right? Like you've got this view that that's part of what it is to be a good human being. That's your perspective. That's your view. So then that encourages particular actions. So then you might, maybe you go to a protest, maybe you recycle, maybe you get an electric car, all the, whatever different things. Maybe you decrease meat eating, whatever your thing may be. And you get pleasure out of the activities, right? You're like, because you're like, I have this view. This view has these actions. And when I'm doing this activity, because I'm in an alignment with my view, there's a pleasure there. So it works in reverse. You start with a view and then that view encourages particular actions that then become pleasurable because they're part of your point of view. So the Buddha talks about how it works both ways. Sometimes we create views that lead us into the sensual world. And sometimes the sensual world leads us back to creating views. The challenge is when we're attached to them, right? It's not the view itself. It's the clinging. It's thinking that my view is right. My view is the only view. My, uh, another one is, so let's see, thinking that you're right, thinking that your view is the only view. Another big one the Buddha talks about is uh, feeling superior because you have a particular view. Not simply that it's correct, like, you know, in sense truthful, but feeling that you're better than somebody else because you have a particular view. That's also view clinging. And <laughs> That one, we're all, we're all, I think guilty is charged. So, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, my point of view is correct or my point of view does less harm because you can kind of get in there and kind of justify that. But then it goes to this other level where you feel superior or better than other humans because of your point of view. Your view is not only right, it makes you a better person. So that's, that's view clinging in its kind of most dangerous capacity. Another part of the view clinging that gets us into so much trouble, and this is a tough one. So it's the idea that all people have to have the same point of view, that I'll frame it this way, that a peaceful planet would be when everyone agrees, like on the exact same views, rather than the acknowledgement that points of view have to come together in compromise, negotiation, that it's not like one right view dominates the other right view, that multiple right views and wise views can cohabitate a human space. So that idea that we become so attached to the view that it's so right, and then we get the quote unquote righteousness where we then really try to force or impose the view on someone else. It goes from it's my way to it has to be your way, that moving into harm, right? Harming someone else by the tyranny of view. So that's another layer that the Buddha is trying us to be mindful of, of how we can harm others simply by trying to impose a point of view on someone else. So I'll pause there. 
So the, I'll tell you what the other two are and, and we'll do these next week uh, as we move forward. So today we talked about clinging views and sensuality view, right? Those are the two and they interconnect. The other two views that we'll talk about next week are habit views, habit and practice views. That's one. That's about the habits or the rituals of living that we do and how we cling to certain behaviors. And then the last one is, of course, the most complicated, which is doctrine of self, identity views, clinging to a sense of I, me, mine. So those are the four types of clinging that the Buddha talks about. Sensuality clinging, view clinging, habit and practice clinging. Some of you might be uh, familiar with habit and practice clinging being translated as uh, being attached to rites and rituals or rules and rituals. That's another way it's translated. And I'll go into the history of that next week, like why it's translated that way. So habits and then doctrine of self or self-clinging, clinging to I, me, mine. So those are the other two and we'll talk about those. And so just bringing this back around, again, this is in context of the Satipatthana Sutta refrain, where the Buddha is saying, with your four foundations of mindfulness, we are going to practice looking at clinging. So to show you how this kind of moves out into your meditation, our views about, let's say we use the first foundation of the body, right? We have views about what the body is, how it should be used, what's beautiful, what's not beautiful, what's health. We have all these views about our body. We have views about our thoughts. We have So we start to look at these clingings and we connect them to the foundations of mindfulness and we use any one of the four foundations to explore the clinging. Where am I clinging, right? Am I clinging? So, and I'll, we'll go into this either next week or the week after on how we actually do these kinds of practices, but just wanted to ground you once again in the reframe. The idea is we look at clinging in the context of the four foundations of mindfulness. And we ask ourselves routinely, here's how I would invite you to do it kind of as a journal reflection. I would say today, or maybe these days in my life, where do I notice the most clinging? If you had to just write down four or five things, what are you clinging to the most? Another one you can ask is, historically, what do I tend to cling to? right? What kinds of things, we all have our pet peeves, we have our preferences. So reflecting like, okay, what are the things that I tend to really cling to, right? What are those preferences? What am I grasping at? What do I have? Another way of framing it as a Dharma reflection is, what do I struggle to let go of, right? What needs to be let go of and where do I struggle to let go, right? What do I grasp after? So that's where we're moving into practice. And so you can look at your views. And most of us, I think, especially as meditators, can start to notice when we're feeling righteous, right? Like, I'm right, you're wrong. We, we notice, you know, <laughs> we may not like it, but, you know, we notice when the righteousness creeps in. So we'll talk more about that, like how to, to put this into practicality. And like I said, it's a little complicated because there's a lot of versions of this, but next week I'll go into the other two of this and then we'll go deeper into types of practice and uh, I think we should do, at least in the next couple of weeks, do some breakout groups so we can kind of talk about this and do some crosstalk as well. That's a mouthful. We are at time. And uh, for those who can stay, let's offer some love before we leave. All right.
Take a long, slow, deep breath. Relaxing fully back into the body. Just notice how you feel. It's been 90 minutes or so. How do you feel in this moment? Just notice the sensations. Let's thank ourselves for the practice of the evening. The joy of community, the generosity of being, the privilege of being in community practicing. And we might remind ourselves that, as always, we practice for our own freedom and our own healing. We definitely desire liberation for ourselves. But we are awake and aware always that our highest aspiration is that all beings benefit from the merits of our practice and that all beings can be free from suffering. Let's end this evening by answering our now famous question. In this moment, if we could wish anything for all beings and know that wish would come to pass, In this moment, what would you wish for all beings? May all beings be free. May all beings be free. Be well, my friends. Much love to you. Thanks for joining me. I will see you next week. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. 
Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.